0: Romans 5, starting with verse 6. Hear now the word of God. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray, asking the Lord to teach us from his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is perfect and true. We're thankful that you have given to us a word that is inspired and infallible and inerrant, one that is a light unto our path. We pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your message. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The basic message of Scripture is crystal clear. Paul told Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Theologians talk about the clarity of Scripture or the perspicuity of Scripture. Although there are plenty of complicated and difficult parts of the Bible, the basic message of Scripture is simple and clear. And in my passage this morning, particularly verse 8, we see an example of the simple, straightforward, clear teaching of the gospel, that God demonstrates his own love towards us, verse 5, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, while this is a simple passage of Scripture, it has three profound truths. One, we are sinners in the very middle part of Romans 5.8. The Bible teaches us much about human sinfulness. We encounter it in the first pages of Scripture in Genesis 3, where we see an example of sin and rebellion, nakedness and shame, judgment and death. Some say that the teaching of human depravity is the most provable of all Bible doctrines. All you have to do is look around you and you see examples of human depravity. It was a lesson taught in the earliest days of American history to school children with their ABCs. Some of you might be familiar with the New England Primer, something used in New England and then replicated throughout the colonies, which taught the ABCs through scriptural principles and so rather than being A is for apple and B is for ball, you would have scriptural truths like A is for Adam and B is for Bible and so on. And with each letter of the alphabet, there'd be a little picture, and then there'd be a little rhyme to seal the truths of Scripture. And so A was for Adam, and then the woodcutter picture was of Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden, and the little Scripture poem In Adam's fall, we sinned all, an emphasis on human depravity. And if we ever doubt human sinfulness, just turn on the news. All around us, we see examples of human wickedness and depravity. It seems to surround us in an accelerating fashion. The book of Romans emphasizes human sin. It emphasizes sin and the gospel grace, faith, and salvation, but it emphasizes sin. And so in Romans 3, you see a powerful case for human sinfulness and the judgment of God. Romans 3.9, that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. Romans 3.10, as it is written... None is righteous, no not one. Romans 3.11, no one understands. No one seeks God. Romans 3.12, they are all gone astray. All are worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so as the apostle Paul makes his case... For human depravity, he quotes scripture after scripture from the Old Testament to prove that human beings are fallen and sinful. A number of years ago, I suppose 40 years ago, I served a church where one of the elders was just passionate about the doctrines of grace, which include the doctrine of total depravity. And we were arguing with a liberal minister. And it was, in some ways, kind of entertaining to watch this unfold. And the liberal minister said, I think that all people are basically good. And then the elder would quote from Romans 3, that they're all gone astray. No one's good. And then the liberal minister would say, but I think down deep everyone seeks after God. And then the elder would quote from Romans 3. No one even seeks after God. And uh, it was kind of an entertaining dialogue. And afterwards, the elder was kind of fussing about this liberal guy because the liberal guy had wrapped up the conversation by saying, I think the Apostle Paul has a low view of man. I said he was right. Paul has a low view of man. And the elder said, but the difference is you believe what the Bible says, you believe what Paul teaches, this other character doesn't. Over and over again, the Bible teaches us that we are sinful, we are fallen, and we are worthy of the judgment of God. Romans 3.19, the whole world is accountable before or guilty before God. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. In Romans 3.23, a scripture familiar to you, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that leads us to our chapter because we find the same teachings in Romans 5. In Romans 5, verse 6, when we were still without strength or why we were still weak. Theologians talk about the doctrine of human weakness and inability. Without the grace of God and without the power of the Holy Spirit and the illuminating work of God's Spirit, we would never come to Christ. We are weak and fallen. The last part of verse 6 tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. And that's not a very flattering portrait of ourselves, but that's the truth of human beings, that they are ungodly. We're weak, we're ungodly. Verse 10 tells us that we were enemies of God, and that's a dangerous spot to be, to be enemies of God and rebels against Him. Indeed, in verse 9, we are told by implication that we all deserve the wrath of God because we're sinners. But wait, it gets even worse, because in verses 12 and following, we learn about original sin, that in Adam there is sin and death and misery for his posterity. There's a great contrast made between Adam and Christ In Adam, there is rebellion and death and judgment, and in Jesus Christ, obedience, righteousness, and grace, and life. Or to put it this way, to paraphrase one of the Puritans, everybody's on a team. You're either on Team Adam, and that's a bad place to be because it is a place of sin and death and judgment, or you're on Team Christ, you're counted in Christ, you're elect in Christ Jesus, which is a place of faith and grace and salvation and everlasting life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so from Romans 5, 8, the first truth is that we are sinners. A second truth from the very first part of the verse is that God loves us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. This is a tremendous encouragement to Christians. We know that Romans is directed to Christians. Romans 1 6 says that the epistle is written to those called of Jesus Christ. Romans 1 7 it's written to those beloved of God, called to be saints. God loves sinners. He loved us even when we were still sinners, even when we were yet sinners. He loved us. The common view, I think, is that God will love you if you clean yourself up first. The biblical view is that God loves us when we were yet sinners. Indeed, God has loved us from the foundation of the world. But notice the language of Romans 5.8, because there's a special word that's used, But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And it's a strong word. It's used, it's translated different ways in different versions. I'm using the New King James Version. God demonstrates in the Authorized Version. It's commends. You might see shows, commends, proves, confirms, demonstrates, manifests. But it emphasizes God's love. It is good news that God loves us, that God goes beyond that to demonstrate or manifest his love, that we can all see it and the whole world can see what he has done. The Bible emphasizes God's love. In Genesis 3.16, we see a familiar message of God's love and salvation for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John returns to that same theme in first John four, where we're told that God is love, God is agape, first John four eight. 1 John 4, nine. in this was manifested the love of God towards us because God sent his only begotten Son into the world. 1 John 4.10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God is love. He shows his love by sending Christ into the world, the Incarnation. He manifests his love by his Son being the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins at Calvary. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is a rhetorical question the Apostle Paul asks at the end of Romans 8. A passage of scripture you're familiar with. What shall separate us from God's love? And then there's a long list of things that can't do it: tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword. I mean, all of these things were more than conquerors. Romans 8:38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in Romans we read that God loved us even when we were still sinners. And we are given this encouraging message that God will continue to love us, his people, until the end, and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. If you look at Ephesians 2, you find the same emphasis upon human beings as sinners and the overwhelming love of God. And if you remember Ephesians 2, the first three verses, there's this terrible description of our human condition, that we were dead, in sins. We walked according to the ways of this world. We followed after Satan. We copied the sons of disobedience. We were filled with lust and filled with the desires of the flesh and mind. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, and there's this wonderful transition in Ephesians 2 4. But God, compared to the wretchedness of our human condition, but God, rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us. And he quickened us together with Christ. He raised us up in heavenly places in Christ, so that in ages to come, Ephesians 2.7, He will show us the riches of grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. And the point of all of this is that you are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God loves us. God is gracious to us. Even though we are sinners, he has shown us the manifold riches of his mercy. And that's not a New Testament teaching alone. If we spent time in the Old Testament, we could see the same theme. For instance, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number or mightier than the other peoples, for you were few in number. But the Lord loved you and chose you and made an oath to redeem you because of his own mercy. It's a common Bible theme that God loves us. A third great truth from Romans 5 eight is that Christ died for us. In fact, in our paragraph, that's emphasized twice for emphasis. Verse 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ Died for the ungodly. In verse eight, God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did this while we were yet sinners. Christ did this in due time, or we might even say, in the fullness of time. Following Galatians four three, this is a core teaching of the Christian faith. Christian Christ died for you. Years ago, before I came to Liberty, I taught at, oh, kind of a secular college in southwest Virginia. And uh, we had a student there who was Muslim. She was from Saudi Arabia, and she was very interested in Americans, and she was very interested in Christians. And She had figured out I was a Christian, so she would come by sometimes to ask questions about Christian stuff. So one time she said, How is it that Christians and Muslims differ? They've got a lot in common. How do they differ? And I said, Well, Christians have two unique teachings that Muslims do not have. One, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And second, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And she screamed. Right there in my office, she went, ah! And I thought, oh no, I, this is a triggering event, I guess. I, I, am I in trouble? And I said, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean to upset you. you. You asked me what the key difference is. I, I, I'm trying to explain. These things are core to the—but how could it be? That doesn't make sense. How could it be? And then We talked, and I shared some Bible verses. To the modern man, and increasingly to our cultural elites, these key Christian teachings are considered anathema. But that's what we believe. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what God's Word shows us. That Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That Jesus died for our sins. And our salvation, forgiveness of sins and eternal life is based on what Christ has accomplished. Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Now even though this is a simple truth, it has profound theological implications. For instance, the idea of substitution, that Jesus was a substitutionary sacrifice. He died for us. He died for me. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. First Corinthians fifteen, three, and four. And you might remember that he introduces this by saying, This is the gospel that I received, that I preach, that you believe by which you are saved of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. If you know the Old Testament, you know in the sacrificial system, animals were sacrificed, pointed ahead to what would come later with Christ, as a covering for sins because a substitute was necessary. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we're told, that Christ is our perfect priest, and Christ is our perfect sacrifice. He is our substitute. Second, it involves a teaching on justification. In fact, this term is used twice in Romans 5, verse chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And also in verse 9, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, the doctrine of justification is an essential teaching of Scripture regarding our understanding of salvation. Our children learn this when they're young, when they recite the wonderful things Theological richness of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Westminster Shorter Catechism 33, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. By chapter 5, Paul has been building to this point. He uses the example of Abraham on justification, Romans 4, 1 through 3, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He uses David's experience in Romans 4, 6 through 8 to teach that God imputes righteousness and forgives his sins, based on the teaching of Psalm 32. Or look at the teaching of Romans 3. I'll read selected verses or portions of verses from Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. There's an emphasis on justification by faith but done because of the shed blood and the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Substitution, justification, Romans 5, 9, salvation. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The Scripture here mentions this term, wrath, which is not common in evangelical teaching today. There's oftentimes emphasis on grace and faith, all good things. But the term wrath and the consequences of sin and what our wickedness deserves is oftentimes passed over. The Bible teaches that the wrath of God rightfully falls upon sinners. But Jesus Christ, in his propitiatory sacrifice, satisfied the wrath of God and fully paid the penalty of our sin. And that's referred to here that we are justified, saved from wrath through him. Indeed, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And reconciliation. In verses 10 and 11, we find three instances of the term reconciliation used. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through the, our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We're no longer God's enemies. We're no longer at war with God. We have been reconciled through Jesus Christ. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5.18. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.20 uh, Now let me conclude with a couple of applications from our verse, Romans Five, eight. First, the gospel is simple. It's straightforward. It's clear. It's easy to see. Paul said to Timothy, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings leading to wisdom unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And our verse teaches us that we are sinners, that God loves us, and that Christ died for us. That's a message profound and yet simple. Even a child can understand it. Second, the gospel is personal. Notice in Romans 5, 8, the number of times the first person is used. We were sinners. God loves us. Christ died for us. Christian, there's tremendous encouragement to seeing this. The gospel message is personal particular specific and it must be personally accepted and received designed for you that we would embrace these things listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes his conversion in first Timothy 1 verse 15 in first 1 Timothy 115 we find something of his testimony, and experience with grace. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And that right away emphasizes the importance of this teaching. Faithful the Word, faithful the Logos. This is a faithful saying deserving to be accepted. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So there is an emphasis upon Christ coming into the world, coming to save sinners, and then Paul's personal testimony, among whom I am the chief most, the foremost. I'm the number one person needing grace. And God was merciful to me as a testimony to the world that anybody can be saved. God saves sinners, and that why, that's why Christ came. And so all of us should say or be willing to say that Jesus is my Savior. My trust is in the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. And a third point as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is that the gospel is emphasized in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, we read, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the bread and cup are symbols or signs, seals, They point to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. They are visible signs that Christ died for us. And we collectively, as God's children, as people of faith, as those who are Christians trusting in Jesus Christ, proclaim the Lord's redeeming grace and the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. We collectively say... My hope for salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life comes because of what my Savior Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. It is our way, collectively, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, pointing to what Christ has accomplished for poor sinners and what he has done for us his children. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your great love. We're thankful for the coming of Jesus Christ into this world in due time, in the fullness of time. And we are thankful for his death at the cross of Calvary. We're thankful that this was needful for salvation, that it was accomplished. We are thankful that as your children, by grace through faith, we embrace Christ and the promise of Scripture that our sins are forgiven, that our sins are not imputed to us, but rather the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would help us to partake in a worthy manner and help us to proclaim the Lord's righteousness and Christ's salvation and your redeeming grace as we commune together and with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Psalm 25C. Let's stand together and sing Psalm 25C.